You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart, and this is Brie. So, I was staying in a hostel in Madrid, and on the first night, um, I was woken up in the middle of the night by someone who was, like, banging on these lockers, like, really, really loud. Um, and I thought that, you know, they might have been having a come down from uh, something that they might have taken earlier in the night. And I was a little bit freaked out and I just sort of laid in my bed with my eyes closed, um, trying not to <laughs> make a sound. And then they sort of like walked over kind of like near my bed and moved around a little bit and then walked out of the room. And I was like, OK, that was kind of weird. And then the next night, the exact same like pattern of sounds happened in the exact same kind of sequence. And so I was like, okay, something, this isn't what I thought it was from last night. This is something else. So I opened my eyes and had a look and I could see that this person was like sleepwalking and they got into the corner of the room where I was sleeping and they were stuck in this like bay window and they kept walking over and over into the wall. And I was like, whoa, that's so weird. <laughs> like, they clearly, in their head, they're somewhere else. Like, they may be in their house and, you know, there isn't supposed to be a wall there and they seemed really confused. And then they just, like, stopped for a moment. And then they pulled out their genitals and pissed on my bag <laughs> that was sitting in the corner of that bay window. And there was a beautiful cashmere sweater that I'd left on the top of that bag um, that was absorbing all of that yellow gold. Um, and I kind of froze. I was like, what do I do? And this voice in my head was like, you're never supposed to wake a sleepwalker. So I didn't. I just sat there and I watched this person peeing on my stuff and I did nothing. And that was my story of uh, being in Madrid. <laughs> our whole episode this week is about sleep. And in our first story, Cherry explores what we know about the science behind sleepwalking. Initially, we were extremely concerned about it. You, know, you don't want to see a little girl out there sort of frightened and not being able to really communicate with her. It just disappeared like, almost as quickly as it appeared. That's my dad talking about me sleepwalking when I was about eight or nine years old. A conversation with a friend about her sleepwalking got me thinking back to my own experience. I recently sat down with dad to find out what his memories were of that time. What um, memory do you have of me sleepwalking? Oh, when you were about uh, three or four, five, I used to wake up at night, I'd hear you get up and you'd be walking around the house on your, almost on your tiptoes and just making funny noise, going, oh, look out. And then I, you'd go outside, sometimes you'd walk down the stairs, you'd go out in the backyard, and it was either sometimes night, sometimes early morning, and... Uh, You'd be looking at me going, oh, oh, oh. We'd take you back and we'd put you back into bed. And the next morning or whatever, we'd wake you up. You had no recollection whatsoever. I sound pretty creepy if you ask me. My poor parents. But this was a long time ago. I assumed the medical profession probably knew a lot more now about sleepwalking than we did back then. So I decided it was finally time to go to the doctors. 
I settled in for a chat with Dr. Lachlan Stranks, respiratory and sleep physician with the Woolcock Institute of Medical Research in Sydney. How did you actually become a sleep specialist? Like, how did you how did you become interested in this area in the first place? Sleep was something that had always really interested me. It's something we spend a huge portion of our lives doing, and it's still something that we don't actually know very much about. Can you tell me? I mean, we all think we know what sleepwalking is, but what what actually is sleepwalking? Yeah, so sleepwalking, uh, the medical term for it is somnambulism, uh, and it comes under the heading of something we call parasomnians. So a sort of broad term for things that we do when we're supposed to be asleep. And essentially what it is, or what we think it is, um, because it's, a lot is still unknown about a lot of these things, is a sort of sleep-wake limbo, if you like. So you have this dissociation between sleep and wake, where you're able to complete sometimes even complex motor behaviours, but without any level of consciousness and with complete amnesia of the event afterwards. So it's a bit of a spectrum of activity that can range um, from anything that we call a confusional arousal, where people just sort of wake up look around, disorientated, um, you know, might make some purposeless movement in the, in the bed but fall back to sleep uh, and then moving towards sleepwalking where people are actually getting out of bed, moving around, doing more complex behaviour. I had some memories of my own sleepwalking as a child but I didn't know how true they were. The last time I remember doing it, and this sounds like at the at the far spectrum of what you just described, I was literally running around the backyard. So yeah. I'd gotten out of bed, gone out of the house. My parents were kind of like chasing me and I was very scared of something because I can even remember somehow I must have been coming out of it saying, don't come near me, don't come near me because I, I must have been hallucinating thinking that they were something else because why would I say that to my parents and I actually remember my parents even though they're a bit scared they actually started laughing because it was it was comical you know I'm running around in my shorty pajamas in the backyard <laughs> going don't come near me you know yeah. <laughs> like, like what you're describing is that that limbo state it's kind of a, a twilight zone isn't it so it's understandable that it would be a bit scary yeah definitely I mean it's this entire unknown spectrum and you're doing things in your sleep that you don't even know you're doing and often then don't remember. So it often gets sort of talked about in a funny way because people sometimes do some funny things. I have to interrupt Lachlan right there as that's the perfect segue into my friend Jess Skinner's sleepwalking experience. While me running around in the backyard in the middle of the night might have made my parents laugh, Jess, well sleepwalking Jess, definitely trumps me in the comedy stakes. When did you start sleepwalking? As long as I can remember, I've always sleptwalk. Mum said that I've always sleptwalk, so um, got really bad during my teens and 20s, and I still do it now, but I can't remember as well as I could. And how old are you now? 31. Okay, so still sleepwalking in your 30s is not that common. So uh, you said that there was a genetic component, you believe, to your sleepwalking? Yeah, my mum has sleepwalked as well. She's got some cracker stories as well. Um, so she's in her late 50s now and still will sleepwalk. Um, she was here over Christmas and I'm pretty sure I heard her a few times. But, um, yeah, so she still does it. For her, it's unknown places that, like, if she's not in her comfort zone, she'll sleepwalk. Tell me about some of the funny experiences you've had with, you know, observing sleepwalking in your mum. 
Um, so mum, when she was she was staying at a botanic gardens um, hotel in Darwin once um, with a whole heap of nurses, and she um, was climbing over the beds pretending that she was in a jungle. So she was stepping on all the people, and she was like doing the whole getting the vines. Bit of a David Attenborough impersonation. <laughs> um, and wasn't talking or anything, but just stepping on all the nurses that she was sharing the whole time. They must have thought that was a bit odd. Yeah, they. Um, it's still one of their favourite stories to retell now is mum walking over top of them pretending that she was in a jungle. The story that my sister loves to retell is um, one night I woke up and we were living in a demountable and she was in the lounge room watching TV and um, I walked out of the room with my pillow um, and she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, Ben's in my bed. And she's like, what? I'm like, Ben's in my bed. Ben was her boyfriend at the time. And she's looked at me and absolutely lost it laughing. Ben was nowhere on the property. um, And she's just like, okay. You you go you go sit down and I'll go get Ben out of your bed, Jessica. And so I've sat in the bathroom on the toilet, cuddling my pillow, and all I know is all I remember is Tegan coming into the bathroom and going, "It's okay, Jessica. Ben's out of your bed. You can go to bed." So I've like sulkingly walked back into my bedroom while she's texting her boyfriend, going, "Can you get out of my sister's bed?" I'm like, oh my God. So slightly mortifying. I don't know why, yeah, he was in my bed, but apparently he was. So it is funny and it's okay to laugh, but there is a serious side to sleepwalking. There is actually potential for harm with sleepwalking, which is one of the things that we try to manage and mitigate as sleep physicians. So, you know, running around in the backyard when you're asleep, you can potentially injure yourself or, you know, do something you weren't meaning to. No, in its most extreme, some people can even operate machinery or drive and things like that. So there is significant potential for harm and injury, but it often gets thought about in quite a funny way because it's just, um, I don't know, it's so out there, it's so bizarre. Probably the funnier things I've heard have actually not been in my time as a sleep physician, but from friends that I've had who have sleptwalked who have often had sort of uncomfortable experiences, say if they're seeing someone new and they've forgotten to warn them that they might sleepwalk, that their their partner wakes up to sort of unexpected activity in the in the wardrobe or some other part of the house and <laughs> and they didn't realise that they were sleepwalking and it Would creates be a, a sort of disconcerting. Exactly, yeah. And oh. sort of creates an awkward conversation the next morning. Often what we find is that with sudden change of environment or potential, you know, psychological stress, these parasomnias can actually get worse acutely. Um, so, you know, that's something to think about if you do have a child who sleepwalks or, or has one of these other parasomnias. Um, sometimes they can get worse in new environments or with stressful situations. And they typically do, well, they, they start in childhood. And, and the thought is that it's because a lot of our sort of brain pathways are still quite immature as children. The brain is still learning which parts should be asleep, which, should, which parts should be awake. Um, and as we grow up, obviously, these pathways mature, so sleepwalking and other parasomnias are supposed to become less and less common. Um, but they certainly can still persist into teenage years, and even beyond that, we see it in adults. Re-enter my Exhibit A, Jess, still sleepwalking in her 30s. 
it'll be interesting to see in the next sort of six, eight weeks. I've got a pretty stressful time coming up at work um, and it'll be interesting to see. I might have to get Steve to pay more attention to if I am sleepwalking and if stress is a trigger for me. So we've covered stress and change of environment, but there can be other triggers for those nocturnal wanderings. And that can be anything from sleep deprivation, alcohol, illness and fever and and certain medications. On the whole, the sort of uh, pathophysiology and and things that are causing this are still quite poorly understood. So we don't have an exact mechanism. Subsequent management is mostly psychological um, and sometimes pharmacological. So the psychological therapy, because we know that often it can be related to stress as well. So um, referring patients to psychologists for help with relaxation and cognitive behaviour therapy. And then in those people who do need medication, we usually use um, family medications called benzodiazepines, which people often use for sleep as well. Um, But it's really basically to sort of knock someone out for the night so they can't get up and, and do things that are potentially unsafe. But hopefully, you know, with time, we actually get some more answers and perhaps some more focused treatment and understanding of why certain people have this disorder and other people don't. Now, I wasn't planning on reviving my childhood sleepwalking escapades anytime soon, but I thought it might be fun to catch up with Jess if I did. That strange twilight zone that we, we inhabit, us sleepwalkers. Yes. It is. Maybe one night I'll meet you in the twilight zone, Jess. It'd be impressive if you can get if we can meet up between our two places. Well, why, why can we not? Like you know, anything's possible. Why can we not? You can teleport in our dreams, can't we? We can. <laughs> well, um, if I do see you, please say hello, I and uh, I'll try not to think you're trying to get me. Hopefully not. <laughs> that would be a very bad end to the friendship, Terry. <laughs> That story was produced by Terry Coley. MJ Bakewell was the supervising producer. You're listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. I'm Danny Stewart. At All the Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. This week, our episode is dedicated to stories about sleep. And up next, Paige explores what life is like as an insomniac. It's 3am. Today was alright. I actually felt pretty normal. I'm sort of starting to lose concentration, but I don't know if that's all in my head because that's what the doctor told me would happen. So, yeah, I guess we'll just see.
into it. Is yep. that, is that, are those headphones okay? No, that's fine, thanks. Yeah. Right. So my first question is, can you die from lack of sleep? <laughs> um... Meet Dr. Dev Banerjee. He's a sleep doctor from Sydney. We'll just call him Dr. Dev. At the end of the day, sleep-wake is a bit of a yin-yang process and I get people to come to my clinic and say, I've not slept for 30 years, what are you going to do about it? And actually, when you Dr. Dev is my sleep doctor. So we don't actually have individuals who have no sleep at all, but there are some conditions that people might have heard about called fatal insomnia and those individuals who die from this condition is is because of other neurodegenerative conditions and insomnia has, is, is one of the side effects so the answer to your question is no so when people come to me and say I don't sleep very well they have that perception of don't sleep very well and what I'm trying to work out is it a difficulty in initiation of sleep or is it a difficulty in maintaining of sleep? So we, we sort of loosely use this term insomnia to describe poor sleep or sleep deprivation or lack of sleep, but it's quite a loose term and you have to be a little bit more uh, investigative and in trying to work out exactly what aspects of the sleep is an issue. Tom. That's me. Nice to meet you. How did you sleep last night? Okay, now this is Tom. Since I've been about 10 years old, like you'll go to bed and you'll sort of lie there as you're still awake seven hours later um, and you end up probably getting about two hours sleep a night. He's in his late 20s and he runs a bar in Sydney. You get two hours sleep five days a week and then one day you'll just crash for like 14, 15 hours, 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 hours. Tom has insomnia. Uh, it's just something that has become part of my routine. Like I know what I have to do to survive on very little sleep and I know what I have to do to sort of uh, regenerate myself after that. Kind of got me curious. I mean, what does that mean for everyone else? How does everyone else sleep? Best case scenario, I go to bed at 9.30 and wake up at 8, which is like 11 hours. That's so long. How many hours a night do you sleep? Anywhere from 6 to 10. Uh, I think 9 to 10 is good. I would like more, but about 6 or 7. Maybe 5. Eight and a half to 9. Probably about 7. I like to get a full 8 hours. I, I sleep so well. Like, yeah, I, I don't really have sleep problems. Like, I'm pretty lucky in that way. For many people, they don't get to sleep because of social reasons or work reasons, environmental reasons, so on. So we, we sort of loosely use this term insomnia to describe poor sleep or sleep deprivation or lack of sleep, but it's quite a loose term and you have to be a little bit more uh, investigative and in trying to work out exactly what aspects of the sleep is an issue. How one feels at night time and how one feels at daytime is very much intrinsically related to each other. Um, it's definitely hard to force myself to do it because I don't have, I love sleep, eight hours, you know, minimum. Well, the whole point of this was that I wanted to get as close to Tom's experience of insomnia as I physically could, under the supervision of Dr. Dev, of course. 
I cut my sleep in half. I did four nights in a row and pretty much just tried to get on with my normal life in between. Oh yeah, actually, well, there was one little rule. I totally recommend you don't drive, so public transport. You know, on a serious note, if you are undertaking sleep deprivation and you get into a motor vehicle and you know you're tired and you fall asleep, you'd be liable to the law because you're not taking a duty of care. That in mind, off I went. Okay, so this is my first night on reduced sleep. I have so much time and I don't know what to do with it. So I've just been on YouTube for the last, um, like, 45 minutes watching these other kids do sleep deprivation experiments where they don't sleep at all for 100 hours and they film themselves. I feel like I should be making better use of my time right now. What are you doing when you're awake at weird hours? Um, reading, uh, go for walks, like, go to the gym, there's a 24 hour gym, so I can just go there and see it, just find something to sort of fill up your time. Try and not waste it. Uh, it's very easy to just sit and like TV. I feel like an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of uh, infomercials and uh, antiques roadshow and like late night TV. So we are on day one now after my first night on a massively reduced sleep. And I, I don't know, the things that I've kind of noticed today are that I'm, I'm pretty hungry, I'm really craving caffeine, but I feel like those things are totally normal for me. Um, it starts to affect your body a lot, like you start to metabolise sugar a lot faster, so you metabolise any sort of uh, caffeine or like slip, like keep awake aids a lot faster uh, and you go through food to help a lot quicker as well like you're just constantly eating to give yourself energy um day number two and the hunger thing is definitely still a thing um i'm slightly more irritable today more just not really like at anyone but kind of more just at little things that annoy me like what happened before i um couldn't i couldn't remember the code to unlock my bike and it was like really frustrating and I got really angry and then I was like, oh, okay, I know this, we're fine, we're sweet. Um, but yeah, aside from that, I, f I feel like I'm relatively unaffected at this point, wondering how long that will last for. Those people who, who's, who, who don't sleep very well, it's like an equilibrium shift. They, they adjust the equilibrium of, of trying to manage and get through with lack of sleep. So you'll have an, an acute response, acute physiological and psychological response, and also a social response. What the doctor means here is that the build-up of lack of sleep is going to throw my whole system out of whack, and not just my physical body, but my brain, my ability to make choices, and my desire to be social. So, you know, you don't want to be partying, for example, because you just don't feel you've got enough energy to do it. Um, I definitely feel pretty drained today. I can't really concentrate on anything and it's taken me a little while if someone's talking to me for me to realise that they're talking to me. Um, it's day three now and um, last night I gave myself a solid three and a half hours worth of Zeds. Um, and actually, interestingly, last night I got in trouble 
at work for not doing something properly because I'm tired. And um, I definitely had a way lower tolerance for criticism. I just took it super personally. And um, if I wasn't aware that my brain was sleep deprived and, and probably playing tricks on me, I would have, I don't know if I would have been able to cope. Kind of felt a bit teary, if that makes sense. Um, and I know that it can, it can really be hard to control that feeling once it sets in. Those who have mental health illness, anxiety, stress, depression, mood disorders, they tend to have a, a disorder of the sleep as well. It's quite common. There's always a big debate amongst us. What comes first? Is it uh, the poor sleep, unrestorative sleep, or is it the, the mood disorder? I think the two really very much interact together. And so trying to treat one in isolation never really works. It's the easy way out is to say, oh, we'll take some sleeping tablets and, and away you go. But you, you need to understand where that sleep disorder's coming from. Ah, oh, two or three years ago, I had a terrible fucking temper. Um, it was just like... Yeah, it was an unpleasant person to work with and be around, but I've done a lot of work towards sort of uh, removing myself from that. And it's, no, it's not that I have any more sleep or any less sleep than then. Uh, just about understanding, you know, essentially this is how much sleep I'm going to get and this is how I'm going to feel about it. So. Well, insomnia is quite a chronic condition and it's phasic, so you have good phases and bad phases. And so during an acute phase or a bad phase, you, you learn management strategies that you rely on when you have the next bad phase as well. And it's a lot, of, lot to do with learning about yourself and how you manage the situation. Many people are different. It comes for me and for people I know with it, it comes in like waves. Like sometimes it'll affect you like one day a week. And then for six months you'll have like a relatively normal sleeping pattern and then it'll just swing right back to like two hours a night. Well, it's 4am and I was supposed to go to sleep an hour ago, but um, I can't really sleep. Um, I don't know why, maybe I think it's because I had too much caffeine today knowing that I've had to be awake so much over the last four nights and I've like completely thrown my body clock out and all my housemates are upstairs and they're all probably fast asleep and so I'm just lying here awake in bed just that's really annoying because I just want to get my four hours sleep <laughs> for the last night with the hyperarousal response that's trying to keep you awake during the daytime but that hyperarousal response is flight-flight response. There's a bit of a domino effect into the night time and that's probably why you couldn't get to sleep after an, an hour. And that's what we see in many people with insomnia, this hyper-alertness so they can't just switch off. Hyperarousal is less fun than the name suggests. It's basically a peak in cortisol, which is a steroid made in your adrenal glands and it blocks happy hormones like serotonin and dopamine. Uh, I think there's a lot to say about genes and how that affects um, sleep clocks. There's no doubt that there's some people who are night owls, some people are early birds, and genetically that may be the case. We don't know which gene it is, but I think it's really interesting to understand more about the genetics because maybe one day in the future we can work out or test whether someone is a night owl or an early bird and then apply the correct shift work to that person. There's no point in giving a night owl a 4.30 a.m shift on, on the Sydney trains or Sydney buses. It, they just won't manage with a circadian rhythm disturbance. 
I, I was a nighttime person before bars, but I've just gone into a nighttime role and found something that also enables me to get free travel. Oh, I'm just in the bathroom looking at myself in the mirror. I've got massive bags under my eyes. Well, I made it through my experiment, and on the final day, I probably could not have gotten into bed faster. What you'll probably find is even one night, even if you do get eight, nine, ten hours of sleep, you will probably not recover completely physiologically. Physiologically means my body temperature, body fluid composition, my blood sugar levels, my gas concentrations and my blood pressure. When we look at work patterns, it's important that, let's say, after um, a set of nights, for example, there's no point having one good night recovery and then go back on nights again. You need at least two or three. You can't switch your circadian rhythm on and off like, like a switch. It, it's a gradual thing. And I think that probably embodies what we're trying to say is that um, one rule doesn't fit for everybody and you've got to work out um, what works for you. I think we live in a fairly transitional life and what works for you now may not work for you in 40 years. So you've got to readapt and that's key for everyone. All of the symptoms that I've experienced in the last four days were exactly what I expected. I knew I was going to get hungry and I knew I was going to get grumpy and I knew that I'd have no concentration left by the end of the week. But I knew this because these are all feelings I've had in the past. I can think of a thousand times when I've felt exactly the same way as I felt this week. And I know it's because I've slept badly. The only difference is this time I deprived myself deliberately instead of it being circumstantial. And it made everything clearer. But if you're anything like me, you have to learn everything the hard way. So if there's one thing you can take away from this, it's just that sleep is so important. You spend a third of your life doing it, so make sure you're doing it right. That story was produced by Paige Lisi. Beck Fari was the supervising producer. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Emma Pham is our social media producer and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. This episode was mixed and compiled by Lockie Stevens. Shiningberg composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening. <laughs>